Would you turn your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew, the fifth chapter. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, we have the introduction to the greatest lesson or sermon ever preached. This is called by many the Sermon on the Mount. I think Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain. The reason for its name at the north end of the Sea of Galilee is the city of Capernaum. And as you go toward Capernaum on one of those beautiful boats, if you look to the left, that would be to the west, you'll see from the lake that the ground level slopes upward, looking, giving the impression of a mountain over against Capernaum. But when you get out of the boat, you go into the city of Capernaum, and then you come out and go west into that area, that ground area is actually a plain that goes so gradually upward it forms a natural amphitheater. And many believe that this is the place Jesus preached this sermon or taught this lesson. Today and tonight, beginning in Training Union and the evening service, and Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we will be involved in the January Bible Conference with a focus on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. By way of introduction, this morning's message dwells on the first verse. And I think it is permissible to lift this verse almost out of context and yet place it back in context for the purpose of the message. May we pray. Our Father, we thank you for all that has gone into this hour already. The wonderful songs, the impact of God's people meeting together, the presence of all of our visitors. We pray for those who listen by radio. Thou will bring healing to those who are sick, comfort to those who are bereaved, help to those who are facing surgery in the next few hours and few days. And may the Spirit of the Lord move in such a way that Jesus will be held up as clear as the only hope for heaven, the only one who can change our lives here. Pray that the Holy Spirit will do his work in Jesus' name, amen. beginning in chapter 4 verse 25 and there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond the Jordan and seeing the multitudes he went up into a mountain and when he was seated his disciples came unto him multitudes seem to always surround the Lord all through his public ministry. These two verses we've just read say something about the multitudes. If you'll turn, hold your finger there and turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 2. Notice this. 
And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Turn to Matthew 15, 30. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and put them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 2, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. And in the evening when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and those that were possessed with demons. And all the city was gathered together at the door. Multitudes. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them there. Look in your Bible at Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now over and over again in the scripture, we read about the multitudes that came to Jesus. You cannot read very far in the New Testament with, without being aware that in the early years of Jesus' public ministry, there were thousands of people that surrounded him. In John chapter 6, there's the story of so many people being present. And they didn't have anything to eat, and he fed the 5,000 with just a little bit of bread and fish. And then he began to talk to them about how tough the way was. Straight is the way, narrow is the way. Wide is the gate to hell, narrow is the road to heaven. And in John 6:66, a very unusual passage, from that time, many of his disciples, all those multitudes, went back and walked no more with him. When the Lord began to make it clear that it was not a simple, easy street that leads to heaven, that narrow is the gate and broad is the way that leads to death, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. Some who had gotten in on the bandwagon with all the multitudes turned and went away. Same thing happens today. There are people who will get in when all the crowds are there. When everything seems to be going great. When it's popular to serve the Lord. But when they begin to learn the demands of discipleship and what Jesus really said, 
they go away. Jesus was always moved by the multitudes. Turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they were faint and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he to his, to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. These multitudes pulled at the heart of Jesus. In Matthew 23, 37, <clears throat> Jesus sits on a little <clears throat> hill above Jerusalem. <clears throat> Maybe it's the Mount of Olives. And he looks down across the valley of Jerusalem and the great heart of Jesus wept. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered thee as a, as a mother hen would gather her little chicks, but you wouldn't come. Now the multitudes are looking for something. In Matthew chapter five, verse one, and seeing the multitudes, a lot of times we overlook that verse, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And what follows was not given to the multitudes. It was given to the disciples. So this great Sermon on the Mount was a message Jesus gave not as a plan of salvation, but a plan of service. He was saying, the multitudes have great needs. They don't really know what they need. They don't know what they want. It were as if Jesus had said, they have followed me for a while because of the miracles. They have followed me for a while because of the feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000 or the healing of the leper or the touching of a blind man and causing him to see or the raising of this young girl to life. And they have followed me, multitudes. But he said, now disciples, I want to tell you, when you go out to give the message to the multitudes, you need to be sure that things are right in your own heart. You need to be sure that you have counted the cost of discipleship. And that's what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is all about. As important as the multitudes are to the Lord, here he takes his disciples apart and shows them how to really help the multitudes. Let's look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7 just for a moment by way of introduction. In the first section of Matthew 5, he gives the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God or the children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. In this passage, the first of the Beatitudes, the first four portray the ideal heart condition of a kingdom citizen. Then the last five present the actions that will result from the attitude of the heart. And he says, if you want to really minister to these multitudes, be sure you've got things right in your own heart. Be sure your attitudes are correct. One of the great reasons Christian faith has lost its saltiness in our world is because the world has become a little bit churchy and the church has become very, very worldly and most people can't tell the difference. And if you and I want to make an impact on people, We'll have to make the impact by being different, daring to be different. And the Sermon on the Mount tells what that difference is. It has to do with attitudes. It has to do with confessing our sin. It has to do with pride, with arrogance. It has to do with humility. It has to do with going the second and third and fourth mile in our Christian faith. The believer has given up his rights. When you came to the cross, you gave up your rights. People are always demanding their rights. I appreciate J.H. Taylor, precious dear black preacher, for over 40 years, pastor of the Mount Zion Baptist Church. I've never met anybody with a greater Christian heart than that dear man precious faithful man he preached at this pulpit many times before he went to heaven when the freedom riders came through in the 60s there was a busload of them came to Bowling Green they made all kinds of problems everywhere they went causing unrest and riots and violence they said they were nonviolent but everywhere they went there was violence dear brother black preacher J.H. Taylor went down to that bus he said we don't need you here we're going to do okay in Bowling Green without you you go somewhere else and he spoke with a voice of authority and they all went he had taught his people by precept and example that we don't always have to demand our rights God will give us those rights in his own time Beloved, that's true among Christians. When we demand our rights, we may get them, but what we do with them, we gloat over them, we're proud of them. And I'm not just talking about race relationships at all. I'm talking about in God's people, whether you're red, yellow, black, or white.
in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be dealing with this tonight and Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. This first section deals with attitudes. The second section, beginning in verse 13, deals with Christian influence. The third section in verse 17 deals with the fact that the Christian goes further than the responsibility that the law gave him. And in that section, he deals with anger and murder and forgiveness and purity and adultery and your word and love and all those th things, conversation, alms, charity, prayer, and so on. And possessions and criticism and judgmentalism. And then, beginning in chapter 7, verse 15, he deals with the test of what a believer is. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out demons, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me that work iniquity. The real test is in our life. And so this Sermon on the Mount is a message not preached to the multitudes, not a plan of salvation. It doesn't tell people how to be saved. I've heard people say, well, I'm going to live by the Sermon on the Mount. That's what I'll live by. Or I'll live by the Ten Commandments. Beloved, you can't do that unless you're a kingdom man. And for a kingdom man, these are goals. These are not the actions by which God weighs whether you go to heaven or not. This is the influence we shed on a world that is dark and growing darker every moment of the hour and day. I hope you read your church bulletin this morning. Listen to this. There are presently about 5.5 billion people living on the face of the earth. Nearly 3 billion of these will live and die without personal knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord unless believers can change our plan of priorities as to mission giving and soul winning. In America, over 27 million babies have been slaughtered by abortion clinics. An incredible 1,500,000 babies a year in the last 20 years. Wasted lives. Precious people who could have been somebody's but killed before they were ever permitted to make their own mark among us. In America, there are over 250 million people. How many of these do not have a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Over 80,000 people in Greater Bowling Green and Warren County. On any given Sunday, fewer than 10,000 go to Sunday school anywhere. The task is gigantic. What can we do about it? Well, number one, I think the Lord is saying your actions are more important than your words. Your actions are more important than your words. Actions are colored by our attitudes. If I don't like somebody, I may pretend like I like them. They come to the door, oh, well, I'm so glad to see you. I hate your guts inside. They'll get it. Even a dog knows if you hate him. But if you have a genuine love of the Spirit of God in your heart for people and it reaches out, it'll show 
sometimes in your face with a smile. There's some people in our church that have a perpetual smile. What a blessing to be around them. And you can just feel the warmth of the love of God flowing through them. But if our attitudes are not right, Homer Rodehaver used to leave, lead the great American crusade services with Billy Sunday as the preacher. If your heart keeps right, if your heart keeps right, every cloud will wear a rainbow if your heart keeps right. And if our attitudes and our heart is right, it will lead to correct actions. And then he sums this up in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is good, therefore, for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a lamp that... and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Your actions are more important than your words. And what we are has to support what we say. If what we are doesn't support what we say, it will militate against us. Now, we all make mistakes. We all sin. We all fail God. That's the reason Jesus again and again taught us when you pray, you pray this way, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. For if you forgive not men their trespasses against you, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses against him. We need to stay prayed up. We need to stay confessed up. We need to confess our sins. And when that's done, leave them under the blood and don't allow Satan to constantly nag us at them. But what we are says more than what we say. But secondly, as I've read this message, With your words, the multitude will understand. But without your words, the multitude will not understand. Now, what does that mean? In 2 Corinthians 5, <clears throat> verses 20 and 21, Paul said, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. For God hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. God hath made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. So our big mandate is to let the word of God out, to tell others about Jesus, to go and tell. We've heard the Great Commission, go and tell, go and tell. Our lifestyle is not enough. The unsaved world will never get it by lifestyle. Now, lifestyle evangelism is important. That just simply is doing what the gospel says. That's just doing what the Sermon on the Mount says. Live what Christ taught you. But if that's all we ever do, we don't open our mouth, we don't open our lips and tell people about Jesus, they'll never get it. 
This was illustrated to me yesterday. Some months ago, I visited a family in the hospital. The mother was in the hospital. And uh, her husband was there and a fine 14-year-old boy. And at the hospital, the, the mother and father were, were Christians. And I asked the young boy if he was a saved guy. So if he'd been saved, he said no. I said, well, I'm praying for you that you give your heart to Jesus. Well, I really did pray for him. But that's all I said. Yesterday I was out visiting and God impressed me to go by their home just to see how the folks were doing. I went by and that young man came to the door. I said, are your folks home? They invited me in. They came in. And the Holy Spirit whispered, you didn't go far enough last time you talked to that guy. You didn't tell him anything. You just said you're praying for him. He doesn't know what that means. So he came in and sat down on the couch. I said to him, have you ever been saved? He said, no. I said, would you like to know how to be saved? He said, I would. And I opened the Bible and showed him from the Bible how to give his heart to Jesus. And just immediately, he was under conviction and he opened his heart to Jesus. All that took about eight minutes. We prayed, he prayed, we rejoiced. The adults were happy. There was joy. Now I will tell you, lifestyle evangelism and going around telling people we're praying for them is good, but that's not enough. We need to learn how to sit down with somebody and show them from the Bible how to be saved. You say, well, that's not my style. Well, whose style is it? Whose style is it? I would dare say every soul winner in this building today would have to say there was a time when that wasn't my style. I didn't know how to do it. didn't know what to say. You can begin with telling them what Jesus meant, means to you. And you say, well, I don't think we ought to nab everybody and talk to everybody. Well, who's going to do it if you don't? You see, our lifestyle is important as it supports what we say. But if we substitute lifestyle for what we say, it's a cop-out. The unsaved world, not sharp enough to catch on. You see, there are lots of moral people that live in the world. They don't cuss and swear and snort and chew and drink. <laughs> I had witnessed to a very wonderful man about Jesus and he had told me he had never been saved and he was interested wasn't ready and I talked with a, a, a Christian that worked close to this man I said I wonder if you would try to win I called his name to the Lord oh he said that man's a Christian he said you can't imagine what a good man he is he said I never hear him curse He's good to all the employees. He, well, he's an impeccable man. He's a wonderful man. He's better than a lot of the people that go to our church. I said, did you know that he told me he wasn't saved? Wasn't saved. They'd never ask him. 
I'm just telling you the unsaved world are not sharp enough to catch on to your lifestyle evangelism. Unless we open our lips and tell them. Now the Lord in this passage of Scripture, He saw the multitudes. He said, the multitudes are in terrible need. They pull at my heart. And in one place He was moved with compassion upon the multitudes. But in this particular instance, He took His disciples away from the multitudes. He said, I want to show you something. I want to train you to be soul winners. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. But before you do that, your life needs to stack up. And I want to show you the characteristics of the kingdom man. That's what we'll be talking about in these other sessions. And so you and I have to feel the tug of a world that is lost, eternally separated from God, going to spend eternity in hell. People don't go to hell because they curse and drink and swear and commit adultery. They go to hell because they have never rejected, they have never received Christ as Savior and Lord. And a person can be a good moral individual and still spend eternity separated from God. Jesus said, going to be many that will come in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did I not cast demons out? I did this and that and the other in your name. I went to church. I did all kinds of good things. I was a philanthropist. I took food to people that were hungry. I did all kinds of wonderful things. Lord, Lord. And the Lord will have to say, depart from me. I never knew you because her heart had never been yielded to Christ. Is that hard for God's people to understand? On this special day, a soul winning commitment day, I'd like to ask you, God's people, God's special people, to say, Lord, I know that my lifestyle isn't enough. I want my lifestyle to be right. And what areas of my life aren't right, I want to bring them under the subjection of the Lordship of Christ. But Lord, I want to ask you to move my lips, move my feet, take me out there where people are who need God. Help me to commit myself to go with Christ after the lost. We will never reach out consistently without a commitment. Now I want to tell you there are a few people who have been married for years and years and years by common law consent. I've met a few of them. I would say in many instances unless there's a commitment from the heart there's not any real enduring loyalty that's the reason we ask people to come at a marriage altar and commit themselves openly before some witnesses saying I'm going to take you I'm going to take you for life all of life a lot of people don't keep that commitment but that's God's plan In a very similar way, we need to commit ourselves to the service of the king. Some people can say, well, when I made my profession of faith in Jesus years ago, 
I meant, I meant that, and I never have to make any repeat commitment. But it's all well and good unless you know yourself very well. If you get to know yourself very well, you recognize you don't live up to that commitment all the time. And so every once in a while it needs to be renewed. I want to ask you today to renew your commitment for 1993 to be someone who will go after the lost. There's victory, there's joy, there's a thrill, there's excitement in it. But I don't want to ask you to get involved just for the excitement. I could tell you all kinds of illustrations and stories of how wonderful you feel when you get when somebody gets saved and you're there. It's wonderful. But Jesus didn't tell us to go and you'd be successful. He said they're going to spit on you. They'll persecute you. Everybody won't like for what you're doing. Even some of the Christians will look at you askance and say, well, he's a fanatic. But who are we answerable to? One day we'll have to give an account of Jesus. He's the one we love. He's the one we want to please. If you're here today and you've never been saved, I want to ask you to commit your life to Christ. Trust Him as your Savior and your Lord. If you are saved, take a stand for Him. Follow Him in baptism. Be what God wants you to be. Beloved, if you're a Christian, if you know the Lord, I'd like to ask you to prayerfully take that sheet in a moment. Probably you've already checked those areas that you could spiritually, conscientiously check. And in a little while, place that on God's altar just as a ceiling of your commitment to do what God wants you to do this year. May we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Our Father, it is in some way a difficult thing that we ask God's people to do today. So much easier to come to a worship service and wait for the service to be over and then leave and not have to put our life on the line in any way. But if we understand the scripture, Lord Jesus was always seeking people who would go on with him, who would go deeper, who would be committed disciples. So Lord, touch every one of our hearts we pray that you would give us a desire to place on the altar before God this sacred sheet. There are some areas that very sincere Christians do not have the faith to ask you for right now. We just thank you for them, Lord, and ask you to give them grace in those areas. I would pray for a hundred people who would say, I'll read the Bible through this year. I would like to pray for 32 people who would say, by the grace of God, I want to try to win and disciple one person a month. 
at least 12 this year for God's glory. Lord, teach us all to be tithers. We just place all this in your hand. May Jesus be praised and honored as we wait on him. Now, while we remain in prayer, I want to ask the organist to play for you I am praying. I have a Savior. He's pleading in glory. Dear loving Savior, though earth's friends be few. We're not asking for exactly a parade, but if you have a willingness in your heart to make that commitment, would you take your sheet, treat it as a sacred document, place it on this table before the Lord? We remain with our eyes closed and heads bowed. It's God's business who comes. We're not asking that everybody necessarily see you, but you just come, place that there now would you do it May we stand, please. Brother Buster will lead us in page 300. If you have not yet come, feel free, please, to come and place your commitment slip there. If you're here without Jesus, you've never given him your heart, let me encourage you to give your heart to Jesus today. Trust him as your personal Savior and your Lord. God help you to do that while we sing this first stanza for you, I am praying.